sermon planned, and um, it'll be great. Um, I know, yeah. Actually, Christmas Eve is the one time of the year that I like keep it really short, just because I remember being a kid wondering when that guy was going to shut up. So that's how it goes. This Christmas, we've been looking at the entire story of the Bible and looking at the birth of Christ and, and trying to understand what it meant, um, not just from a story standpoint, but one of the things I want us to see this Christmas is that what happened on those days impacts us today. That it wasn't just that Jesus came and was born. It was one giant step for mankind because God stepped into his creation to save every one of us. But the story is so much bigger that we can't really keep Jesus in the manger. We, we have to understand that he came here on a mission. We've learned what it meant for people who hadn't heard from God for over 400 years to see on that day that God is faithful even when we're not. We looked at the challenge of keeping Jesus in the manger and missing the entire point of the season. And today I want to look at, at one of the most incredible moments in the Christmas story. It's such a powerful moment in history, and often the rest of the story is overshadowed by it. And yet this is the moment that I think if we really learn it, apply it, it'll completely change the way we live our lives. Jesus came to earth with a very specific mission. We've studied Christmas and we understand that we can't separate his birth from his life mission. He came here for a purpose, and that purpose was to die on the cross and resurrect and save everyone from themselves. Now, every person is born with a God-given purpose. I'm going to repeat that. Every person, you, 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 was born with a God-given purpose. You're not an accident. You're not random. You were sent here by God on mission to accomplish what he created you to do. We are uniquely and wonderfully gifted for the purpose that God has for us. There was a moment when God actually decided the world would not be right if you weren't here. Think about that for a minute. At one point, you were the next thing on God's creation to-do list. He chose the time of your arrival, your birth parents, where you'd grow up. He knit you together in the womb. He designed you with a specific purpose. He gifted you for your life mission. You see, we don't think about that very often, and I've used this example many times before, but it gets to the point that I want to drive home, particularly this Christmas. There was a young girl um, who uh, went to church, and they told her, if you pray, God will give you what you pray for. So she's very young. She wakes up. She looks. Her sister is beautiful. Her sister's blonde hair, blue eyes, just gorgeous. Everybody talks about her. Her sister at age seven has done some modeling. Uh, she's younger, but she looks nothing like her sister. She's dark hair. She has brown eyes. And so every day she'd go in front of the mirror and she'd say, God, please, I want blonde hair and blue eyes. The next morning she'd rush back to the mirror and realize that she still had black hair and black eyes. And Every day she'd pray, but it never happened. And then as she got older, her life went on and she felt God calling her into missions. And so she responded to that 
only to realize that God was calling her into missions in a Muslim country where blue hair and blonde eyes, or blonde hair and blue eyes, or either one, (laughs) would have made it impossible for her to accomplish what God had given her to do. You see, you and I are uniquely wired by God for the specific purpose he put us here on the planet. If you're six feet seven, he probably doesn't plan for you to be a horse jockey. It's just the way it is. But you're not an accident. The reason you're different from other people is that God uniquely crafted you for his purpose. Everything about you was decided. Your life was to be lived to bring glory to God, to advance the mission of God. That's why we're here. You see, God has a plan for you even if you don't have plans for him. You're not some random collection of DNA that crawled upon a rock. You're a unique, one-of-a-kind creation sent to earth with a unique mission that you're uniquely gifted to accomplish. You're a vessel that God intends to use. You may not like parts of you. You may wish you had different genes, different parents, different whatever, but you're exactly who God created you to be. And the sooner you can accept that, the sooner you can get on with the mission God has given you. One thing that we've seen clearly throughout this series and almost every series is that God is in sovereign control. He's working out his plan. There's no accidents. There's no random events. Everything that God holds together is held together for a specific purpose. Those who choose to surrender to Jesus will receive the Holy Spirit and begin to live in their God-given destiny. God is working out his plan for you. Every person here is here for a specific reason. We look at people like Abraham and Joseph, Moses and David and Isaiah and the disciples and Paul and Mother Teresa and Billy Graham. We say, wow, God really used them. God had a plan for their life. It's obvious they were born with a purpose. Look at how they're gifted to do exactly what God called them to do. But what we miss is that God does that with everybody. You and I were born to be God's vessel that he's going to work through to reach other people and advance the gospel. He gifted me to teach. He may have gifted you in another manner. Some way that allows you to best fulfill his purpose in your life. The challenge for us is getting ready and being ready when God calls us to the mission that he has us. I think that many of us have not experienced what God planned for us because we don't think we're important enough for God to use for great things. That's for other people. And that keeps us right where Satan wants us. You're equipped, you're empowered, you're already victorious, you're incredibly gifted, and you've been guaranteed success but you're too self-deflated to believe it. See, we bought the lie that God doesn't really use people like us anymore. He only uses the famous people like Joseph and Abraham. I know of a girl who was 13 years old. Dirt poor, came from the projects. Very small town with a horrible reputation. She didn't seem very special at all. No one thought much about her. Didn't think she'd ever amount to very much. 
just living her uneventful life in her too eventful town, not knowing that every human on earth and those not yet here would know her name and call her blessed. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and he said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. She was greatly troubled at that saying, tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, he'll be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth is in her old age and has conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Then the angel departed from her. In those days, Mary arose and went to haste to the hill country to a town in Judah. She entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord." Mary is a remarkable girl, girl, young girl. We can learn a great deal from her. In fact, Mary, we begin to prepare ourselves. Do you know anything about Nazareth, the town? It's, you probably heard Jesus is there, and that's true. It's not very nice, really small, country-esque, rural, not many people live there. It's a very run-down town. It has a sketchy reputation. Gabriel, the same angel that was sent to Zechariah, now comes to Mary from Nazareth, an unlikely place for an angel to go. So unlikely that even Nathaniel, one of Jesus' disciples in John 1, says, does anything good come from Nazareth? God's going to answer that question. No one really knew or cared about Nazareth. I imagine it's like a lot of small towns that dot the old interstates where cars race by. They may stop for gas and a snack, but they keep going because this is nobody's destination. It's a speck on a map, impoverished and insignificant. Verse 27, Luke wants us to know something very specific about Mary, to a virgin. Is that important? Yeah, that's why he kind of mentions it several times. You might ask, well, what did that mean back then? Same thing it means today. 
Some people want to say, what does it really mean? Well, it means virgin. That's what it means. Very, very clear in Scripture. Now, there's general agreement that Mary was between the ages of 12 and 15. I know you've seen Christmas pageants where she's in her mid-20s or mid-30s. She wasn't. Today, we're just going to call her 13 and a half. That's about the age that she was. Imagine Gabriel appearing to a 13-year-old and telling her all of what you know is about to come. Just think about her for a second. This is a crazy story when you think about it. Don't, we normalize the story, but don't let that happen to you this Christmas. It, this is a crazy story. If you told somebody this story, they would just look at you like you need to be somewhere on some medication. It's so familiar to us, we forget just how crazy it really sounds. She's betrothed to Joseph. That means engaged. Engagement was different back then. We've talked about that. When you get engaged, that means you're legally bound to the person the moment you're engaged. You're already essentially in a covenant relationship. You've signed the marriage certificate. If you want to break off the engagement, you literally have to get a divorce. But you've not consummated it yet because you're not living together. That comes later. Sadly, it's the opposite of what people do today. They consummate their relationships and then decide if they want to stay together. Now it says, Mary, you have found favor with God. What did Mary do to have favor with God? She's only 13. We've got to be careful with this. My opinion, a lot of churches devalue Mary. And there's a particular church that raises Mary way beyond where she should be. Protestant churches typically think of Mary too low. Roman Catholic Church puts Mary way too high. I'm here to tell you there's a middle ground. And she belongs there because you can't discount who she is and what she did. She can teach all of us, but she wasn't God. And on her best day, nowhere near the status of Jesus. She's fully human and only human. She doesn't answer prayers. She forgives none of us. Praying to her is no different than praying to any person who served God faithfully. Oh, favored one. Greek word here is charis. Some of you have heard this word before. It's the root word where we get grace. Oh, Mary, you have been given grace by God. So why did God appear to Mary? Because he chose to. And because he chose to use a 13-year-old virgin named Mary, not because she was better than anybody else, not because she was unusual, not because she was any other thing. She was from Nazareth. She was an unlikely choice. The reason Gabriel showed up to Mary is because God chose Mary for this important mission, and he chose her because he chose to, and he's God. It was Mary's God-given purpose in life. She was created for this. God knew when he created her what she would do. That she's, this is the reason she's created. She may have felt like she was a nobody girl from a no-good town, but God called her favored one. Love that about God. God always speaks into your potential, not where you are. I love that. He saw James and John when they were acting like little children, asking their mothers to help them talk to him, and he called them sons of thunder. They weren't anything close to sons of thunder. When Peter was being really Peter, 
He called him a rock, and he was nothing from being a rock. Gideon hiding, God called him mighty warrior, and he hadn't fought a thing yet. You see, God speaks into your potential. He knows who you're going to become, and that's where he chooses to live. You see yourself as somebody that's just all messed up, not yet where you need to be. God isn't limited by time. He sees who you're going to become. You're going to become like Christ. He looks at Mary and he says, you're a favored one. This is her purpose in life. And she was ready for the moment, which is what we're going to talk about today. The moment, as huge as it was, didn't overwhelm her. God had a plan for her life, just like he has a plan for yours. But I never know really what to do with Mary. I'm in good company. Archives of history and old sermons never quite knew what to make of her either. She's been venerated in shrines. She's been prayed to, worshipped, Botticelli, Da Vinci, Michelangelo, Raphael, Bellini, Dolly. Thousands of artists have placed her on canvas. For some traditions, Mary is an afterthought to an end, just a part of the Christmas story, rarely discussed except to occupy a figure in the nativity scene. The dominant understanding, though, is that Mary is a young woman who played the role of giving birth to Jesus. She's most often represented as poised and quiet and reserved and responsive. She does her duty alongside Joseph and then fades into the background. If we pause the traditional narrative and actually look at who she was, we discover that no one in all of human history has had the sort of divine interruption that Mary faced and experienced. Sure, Abraham, Moses found their lives interrupted. God spoke into their lives one day and told them what they were going to do. If we walk faithfully through the pages of Scripture, we find story after story of God working through the lives of people. That work almost interrupts and startles them all at once at the same time. But none held the Son of the living God like Mary did. Luke 1 tells us that Mary found favor with God. Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But there was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you found favor with God. What, what does it mean to be favored? I have a favorite snack food. I have favorite movies, favorite sports teams, favorite sweatshirts, favorite T-shirts, favorite seasons of the year. But that's not the same as having God's favor. Mary's about to become very unfavored in her community. A betrothed teenager who's pregnant before her wedding date is not exactly a woman who found great favor in her community. Same as today, whispers of scandal and disdain ensued. But the angel visits her and says not once but twice that she's found favor with God. At first, the phrase creates anxiety for Mary. She's a devout Jewish woman. She, she knew the weight of the word favor as anyone who's humble would. She's wondering, how in the world do I fall into that category? I'm sure Mary did not think that she deserved to be called favored one of God. 
If she did, she wouldn't have been favored. The very people who deserve it are the least likely to assume the title. To have found favor is to have found grace with God, to gain approval, acceptance, or blessing. In the New Testament, the word grace shows up. Moses, Noah, Joseph, Samuel, all said to have received the favor of God. We see in Genesis that God looked at Abel's offering with favor. Later in Luke, when Jesus begins his public ministry, he says he's here to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. God extends his favor to those who live generous, humble, God-honoring lives. To receive the favor of God means one is in a position and posture of worship, humble, ready to receive, full of grace. It's critical to know that Mary lived in this space. She was a young girl, but her heart was all for God. She quietly, humbly, purposely prepared herself for what God had called her to do and to be ready when God calls. So this 13-year-old virgin from Nazareth gets the message that she's going to have a child. Not only is she going to have a child, it's going to be like this. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he'll reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there'll be no end. Now I know we all like to think our kids are amazing. And they are, of course. But compare your kid to who this kid's going to be. What do we say? We, we, husband and wife have, oh, this is going to be a beautiful baby because y'all are both so beautiful. Trying to be nice to you, you feel the baby kicking and somebody goes, he's going to be a soccer player. We say stuff like this. Now imagine if somebody told you your son was going to be great. He's going to be the son of the most high God. He's going to sit on the throne of David. He's going to reign over the house of Jacob. His kingdom will have no end. That's a different level, right? This is a different kind of son Mary's about to have. She's going to give birth to the Savior of the world. And, oh, by the way, her Savior, too. But this great news comes with a lot of challenges. Mary likely thought she'd never live long enough to deliver this baby. Jewish culture at the time, Mary and Joseph are legally bound. On a wedding day, they would seal the deal sexually, but other than that, they were married. In our culture, an engagement's not legally binding. You can break off an engagement with a legal scuff without a legal scuffle. Not so back then. They were legally connected. Mary was very young. The average age for engagement in her day was between 13 and 16. The angel basically says to this young girl from nowhere, even though you're not married and still a virgin, you're going to give birth to the Savior of the world, the Jewish Messiah that your people are all waiting for. You, an unknown girl from an unknown place, will do this very thing. It's going to interrupt your plans. It's going to majorly turn your life upside down. It's going to wreck your peace. It's going to wreck your sleep. It's going to wreck your friendships, and every inch of your world is going to change you, Mary. You're the one that's going to do this. This is your mission. His name is going to be Jesus, and one day he'll sit on the throne of God and rule forever. 
Jerusha Matson Neal writes, I know why Mary's afraid. It's not that the angel isn't coming, it's that he's already there. Right there in this quiet space waiting for an answer. You see, we don't think about this very much, but when that angel showed up, Mary had a choice. Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed. It's incredible. Mary asked the question, how can this be, though, since I'm a virgin? If you're a 13-year-old girl and your first question to Gabriel, he told you you're going to give birth to a son, you're young, you're not married, you've never been intimate with anyone, the first question is going to be, how's how's this going to work exactly? Her question isn't, should I go natural? Should I get an epidural? Should I use cloth diapers, disposable diapers? You're not going to ask those questions. She wants to know, how is this going to work? I don't understand. Now, notice what she does not do, and this is critical. She does not doubt God. It's going to happen. She doesn't doubt that he can do it or that he will do it or that he's going to do it. She does not try to limit God into her little box of understanding. She asks us a question that tells us her heart's already committed to doing this. I just want to know how it's going to happen. She says it very plainly. It doesn't make sense. Just like Zechariah and Elizabeth shouldn't be having a child because they're too old. Just like Abraham and Sarah in Genesis shouldn't have a child because they're too old. Abraham was 100. Sarah was in her 90s when they had Isaac. Here's the point. God does biological miracles. And he still does them today. They're not coincidences. The virgin's going to give birth. Old Elizabeth's going to give birth. Sarah, who's 90, gave birth. God does biological miracles. Now, this one's unique. It's never happened outside of Mary. She says, how's this going to happen? Well, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you, and you're going to become pregnant because God does miracles. They're called miracles because they don't happen every day. They're called miracles because they're miraculous. They're called miracles because they're things that only God can do, things that are beyond the human experience. That's why they're called supernatural. They're beyond natural. Have you ever felt like God was nudging you towards something? A moment you can't shake, a person you can't seem to erase from your mind, a situation that keeps coming up that you can't seem to get around. These are the stories that tend to haunt our dreams. They cause turmoil and stress that we can't really avoid. People that we're not really seeking out, but they find us. In those moments, God is moving us, opening our eyes and our lives to people and places we never knew. You see, God is trying to get our attention, trying to give us our moment trying to help us see the reason we were created, what purpose we're here for, why and how he uniquely gifted us. You see, when God suggests something, he doesn't really, when he suggests something hard for me, I immediately go into me. God, you have no idea how complicated this is going to be for me, God. How about we pray through this a little bit more? When, When do you actually need an answer here, God? You see, because this is going to hurt my credibility. This is going to be hard for me. This isn't wrinkle-free, and I really wanted my life with you to be wrinkle-free. 
Really, God, you want me to curve my angry, narcissistic tendencies and extend your love and grace to other people, really? You want my family to move from a comfortable, homogenous community to a struggling, diverse one so we can start to understand what justice and community really mean? You want me to end my relationships with certain people so I can better have more honest ones with others? I like those folks. They validate my behavior. They don't ask hard questions. They don't expect much from me, God. And plus, I can influence them for you. Really, God, you have no idea how hard it would be to break my addictions. I can't say may it be so to you because you really have no clue what it's like to live without my vices. I've been there. I know what happens. Really, God, if I say yes to your interruption, my friends will mock me. They may even cease to be my friends. You see, my life will change, and, and you have no idea what that would be like. Really, God, you want me to speak truth and justice and risk my reputation and my posture? You really want me to downsize and not move up? Philip Yancey says that often the work of God comes with two edges great joy and great pain. And Mary embraced both. She was the first person to accept Jesus on his own terms, regardless of the personal cost. You see, we're told, follow Jesus, it's going to cost you. Pay whatever price it takes, he's worth it. She had to live that as the first person ever. While I'm finding excuses and trying to reason with God not to use me, Mary says, I'm a servant of the Lord. May it be as you have said according to your word. Mary said that knowing that her world was about to be rocked. She walked in faith because God and his mission were the top of her priority list. He was more important to her than her reputation, her friends, her family her fiancé, and everybody in Nazareth and everywhere else that would judge her. She loved God more than family, more than self, and more than anything else. That doesn't mean it was easy for her, though. Mary's probably freaking out. She's human, after all. Imagine the fears that a 13-year-old would have just about pregnancy, particularly a sexually inexperienced 13-year-old. Now imagine Mary's emotions. Ladies, I'll just, for a moment, imagine being 12. You're a virgin, you're not married, you're engaged, and now you're going to give birth. Not only give birth, but give birth to God's Son. Every Jewish woman throughout the history of Jewish women have begged God to let them be the one that births the Messiah. They had no idea what the cost would be. What's going on in your head? Anxiety, excitement, fear, all the above? See, I mentioned earlier, but sometimes we romanticize the Christmas story. Have you ever noticed that? We sentimentalize it. We talk about the baby, and Mary is so blessed, and she rides on the donkey, and she doesn't even have to walk, and she gives birth, and it's just such a blessing. She gets to have Jesus, the Messiah, and she'll be an amazing blessing. And we forget the background of the story. She's 12. She's going to be ridiculed for this. For the rest of her life, no one's going to believe that she is a virgin. Would you? Have you ever met a virgin that was pregnant? No. 
She's in a really, really, really difficult circumstance. If she obeys God, her life is over from her perspective. Even her own fiancé in Matthew doesn't believe her. He's going to divorce her quietly, he says. Imagine telling I'm a virgin, I want you to meet my child. Not an easy time for Mary, so she's excited for a reason. She's going to birth the Messiah. But in the temporary, that makes her life very difficult. Let's look at what she says. I'm a servant of the Lord. In other words, I'm here on a mission. I have a God-given purpose. It's not about me, it's about him. I'll go anywhere, do anything, anytime, any cost. You see, I'm a servant of God. Mary's yes was not muffled consent that led to some joyous pregnancy filled with adoring friends and baby showers. Her life instantly becomes a cascade of gossip and drama. When she said yes, she's met immediately with the threat of death. A woman pregnant before wedding was assumed to be an adulteress. If a suspected adulteress maintained her innocence, as Mary would have, she would be taken to a public place, perhaps the gate to the city. Her clothing would be torn, her hair would be let down, which is how prostitutes wore their hair, and she'd be left there to be mocked and open to public humiliation and stoning if people desired. The cultural expectation was that a passerby would mock and humiliate her to make a public example of her and to make sure everybody knew that they were more worthy and righteous than she was. In Deuteronomy 22, the penalty if she was taken as an adulteress could be death by stoning. You see, Mary's yes came with great risk. And a yes to God often does. Joseph backed down from these and other expected legal proceedings at the time. He could have abandoned ship and left Mary poor, unwed, and with a child who, according to Deuteronomy 23, could be mocked and excluded from certain assemblies in their culture. You see, the punishment wasn't just on the woman, it was on the bastard child as well. And Mary's yes put Joseph in a very difficult position. What were the odds that a devout Jewish husband would abandon the custom of shaming a suspected adulteress? What are the odds that her community would forgive this? What are the odds that she would get any semblance of life after this? After all, it's not like the angel said, well, after this, all will be well. After this, I'll secure you a healthy retirement fund, a safe place to live, and a beach condo down in Naples. He doesn't promise her anything. There was great power in her yes. Mary knew the story of her people, God's people, the way God takes care of his people. And in particular, the woman who came before her, like Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba, she knew about the Jewish women. She knew the situation was dire. She also worshiped a God who cared for his people as they faced dire circumstances. The one thing Mary knew was God would be with her through this. He doesn't promise relief from trouble, but he promises his presence in times of trouble. Mary worshiped this God and could say yes with great confidence in him. But I don't know if her response would be my response. Are you sure you want to use me, God? I got a lot of problems. I'm from Nazareth. I'm 13 years old. Are you sure, God? 
And yet she says, let it be according to your will. Her faith is amazing. No wonder God chose her. But immediately after that, she's got to protect herself. Mary needs to get out of Dodge, or in this case, out of Nazareth. It's not a nice town. They love a good stoning. Remember, this is a town that years later tries to throw Jesus off a cliff. She has to get out of town. When this hits the streets, she's in trouble. Her life is at risk. Interesting to me that in Scripture, there's no mention of her mother and father. We don't know their response. But Mary decides she's got to go to somebody who understands miraculous things. Somebody who would understand that God does the impossible. So at this point, she just finds out she's pregnant. She's pregnant with the Messiah. What's the first thing you would do? Well, you'd probably go tell a close relative. So Mary goes to Elizabeth. Elizabeth is much older than Mary, but Elizabeth knows that God does biological miracles. She's living one. She runs to Elizabeth. Nazareth is north. Judah is south. Somewhere between 40 and 70 miles from home. Would have taken a couple days, but I bet she left quick and I bet she moved fast. Very quickly she leaves. She goes to tell Elizabeth what happened. Mary knows Elizabeth is pregnant because Gabriel the angel told her. So she's real excited. She runs from Nazareth about as fast as she can go. Do you remember Gabriel told Zechariah that John the Baptist would have the Holy Spirit in the womb? That's, that's back in Luke 1. So John the Baptist already has the Holy Spirit in Elizabeth's womb. The Messiah, who's like a day old in the womb, maybe two days, maybe five, maybe ten. However long it took Mary to get from Judah down to Elizabeth. She enters the room and John the Baptist jumps. Isn't that crazy? We blow past this too. Think about this. John the Baptist, probably the size of a baseball in the womb. Jesus, a poppy seed in the womb. Jesus enters the room and this baseball-sized child that's unborn jumps up and down because the Messiah just came into the room. That's amazing. That's what the Holy Spirit does, if you think about it. The, the Holy Spirit always announces Jesus, always points to Jesus. These two babies in the womb communicate through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit always points to the presence of Jesus, and that's exactly what happens. You want an argument for life at conception? I would use this one. Don't miss the significance of what's happening here. John the Baptist was the first person to know who Jesus was because it was revealed to him by the Holy Spirit. The first person the Holy Spirit reveals who Jesus is is to John the Baptist. Maybe that's one of the reasons Jesus would say, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who's least in the kingdom is greater than he. You see, every person in this room who's a Christian 
you know the reason you're a Christian is only because the Holy Spirit revealed who Jesus is to you. You can, or how can John the Baptist in the womb can't see anything yet, has very little physical capacity, doesn't understand what's going on, but when the Holy Spirit shows up, when the Messiah shows up, he jumps all over the place. If you're a Christian, if you're a believer, you know the Holy Spirit made it clear to you who Jesus is. So Mary's happy for Elizabeth. She's got to be. Elizabeth and Zechariah have been praying for years, but her situation is not romantic or glamorous at all. Her, hers is going to be really tough. Elizabeth's going to have a great child. Everybody's going to celebrate with her, but Mary's not going to see that. Surely her response to this, after she sees Elizabeth and sees what it's like to be blessed and have parties and showers, she'll, she'll pray to God to protect her, keep her safe from those who are judging her, to guarantee that Joseph will understand. You see, I picture her getting on her knees at this moment and going, God, you got to protect me. You got me in this? You better protect me. You better make sure Joseph is okay. I need a hedge of protection, whatever that means, uh, from the evil one. Her next words to God surely are all about her. Well, they actually are. With everything in the world upside down, with every threat facing her, Mary breaks out in worship. After this, after her fear, after her yes, she breaks into song. I'd be running for cover. I'd be calling people trying to prepare for the onslaught of life after a moment like this. But Mary, Mary breaks into song. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. But behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He's shown strength with his arm. He scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months, and then returned to her home. When most of us would be freaking out, worried about what other people are going to think about us, Mary busts out in worship. She's an incredible person. She's actually excited about what's going to happen to her. Why? Well, we know why she's excited. She's Elizabeth anyway. She's excited. She's old. Never had a kid. Mary's excited for Elizabeth, but she's excited for herself. How many of you, if you were 13 years old and a virgin, would be happy if you became pregnant? Circumstances will be hard. Nobody's going to believe you. Why is Mary so happy? Why does she say she's so blessed? It's a simple answer. And it's an answer that you know the answer to. I just want to reiterate it for you during this Christmas season because this baby isn't just a baby. This is the Messiah. Mary knew. She knew the prophets. She knew the promises. She knew the scripture. She was going to birth the Messiah. The mixed up, horrible world that she lives in is about to be changed. This baby's not just any baby. This baby's not going to stay in the cradle. This baby's on a mission. 
Her baby will be the greatest person ever born. Suppose you knew your child would one day be president of the United States. Now multiply that by a million. That's what has Mary excited. You see, this song is a song of revolution and power. It's a song of strength in the face of injustice. It's not just that Mary bursts out in trouble. She bursts out into a revolutionary cry. She hopes God will penetrate and interrupt the darkness, the injustice, and the poverty. That he'll take all those scattered across the dark world and this God will change everything. Anyone listening to her song at the time would have known her words were aimed at Herod. Herod, the ruler of the day, later hears that a baby king has been born and he slaughters all the children two years old in Bethlehem. At the mere whiff of a challenge to his authority, he slaughtered many. What would he have done after hearing Mary's song? In a culture where freedom of speech was not welcome and death was the penalty for disagreeing with leadership, Mary's song is jarring. If you really read her song, it's very similar to We Shall Overcome that started in the mid-50s here in the United States. Mary is so confident of God's promise to right the broken world that she lives in, she put all the verbs, go back and look at this and don't miss it. Every verb in this song is in past tense. She's so confident God's going to accomplish what he says he's going to do, they're in past tense. They're done. Mary's life took fear, favor, and a yes when God came through her world with an interruption. So Mary brought God's change to the world. What about us? What about you and me? What are we going to do when God interrupts our life? We can learn a great deal from her. God interrupted Mary's very life and her physical body. God interrupted evil through Mary's song. God interrupted the very world through Jesus. Interruptions are frustrating. We bristle when people interrupt our thoughts over our words. Parents shush children who interrupt them while they're on the phone. We struggle with the uninvited stranger who shows up and wants to be a guest. We pace when the internet, power, water, cable service is interrupted. We can barely handle an interruption in our daily routines. And so then how can we manage to say yes to a life of interruptions from God? Whenever and however God is interrupting you, it helps to look to Mary to find how to respond. The first thing, find God's favor. Live in a place where you're always ready to hear from, receive, focus on what God wants to do in any circumstance that you're in. Stop living your life focused on you. Walk around all day saying, God, what are we doing here? Why did you bring me to this place? What do you want to see happen here, God? God, how can I help you in this moment? When an interruption comes to your life, ask God, hey, what are we doing? Why, why is this happening? Not why, like I shouldn't do it, but I don't want to miss what you're doing. Am I supposed to talk to that person? Am I supposed to pray for that person? God, what do you want me to see in this interruption? Live your life in a way that God actually chooses to use you to interrupt the brokenness of the world around you. See, we complain all the time. God needs to fix that. There's got to be something. Somebody's got to do something. And I say all the time, to whom God burdens, he calls. 
Are you living a life of faith and humility and wisdom and grace? Are you known for your patience and perseverance and love towards other people? If not, put yourself in the presence of God. Study God's Word. Pray. Be ready. Be a person who dwells with God and knows God in such an intimate way that when He chooses to do divine work, He'll choose you. Live your life in a way where you're ready to receive and find God's favor. Be ready to serve. Be ready to be interrupted. Look forward to anything God wants to do in your life. Anything, anywhere, anytime, any cost. Like Isaiah, our lives should shout, Here I am, Lord, send me. Second, admit your fears and process them with God and with others. God rarely calls us to things that we can accomplish on our own. He stretches us. He challenges us. He tries to move us into a step of faith where he has to show up. He's likely not going to call you to something you can do on your own. He's going to call you to something that he's going to do through you. Whatever he calls you to do, it's going to require a step of faith in spite of yourself. Mary admitted her fear. There's nothing wrong with admitting fear. Our dominant culture tells us to shrink and avoid fear. We may have been told that fear is a sign of weakness, but fear is honest. Fear is real. Fear needs to be admitted and dealt with. Mary faced her fears, took stock of what was at risk, and said yes to the angel, and later she sang her song. She had a place to process her fear, first to God in prayer. God's always ready to help us pray through what's going on, particularly in trials. He, he says he'll give us wisdom if we ask. But we can also process with other mature believers. In her enduring friendship with Elizabeth, she had a place to process her fear and face it. Find a community that can pray for you, that can process with you, that can stand with you. Admit that some things of God are scary to walk through, and they mess up our routine, they mess up our lives, they demand that we change, and change is scary. Admit and process your fear. Third thing, go ahead and decide right now the answer is yes, no matter what the question is. If God's called you to participate in him with a mission, and he will every single one of us, the answer is yes, Lord. I'm your servant. May it be as you have said. Ultimately, we have a decision to make. Do we say yes to God when he's asking us to do with our lives, or do we keep ignoring his interruptions and invitations? Christians stand in a long line of tradition in which people have said yes to God. Saints, martyrs, missionaries, parents, children, people who just walk their lives in faith. Our yes won't be easy. For some, it will lead to places of pain and challenges that we never imagined existed. But we go there with God and his peace and presence go with us. So just go ahead now and decide the answer is yes. And then the last thing, replace your anxiety and fear with worship. Sing your song. Do you know it's impossible in the human brain to be thankful and worried at the same time? You can't do it. Your brain is not wired that way. If you are thankful, you can't be worried. 
If you're worried, it's very difficult to be thankful. That's why in Philippians it says, be anxious about nothing, but in everything with prayer and thanksgiving, make your request known to God, and the peace of God that transcends all understanding will guard your heart and your mind. Our brains literally can't do it. You can't shout praises of gratitude and mope around and worry at the same time. That's why God tells us the antidote to worry is praying with thanksgiving. When God chooses you, sing your song. Tell the story of your fear. Tell the story of your yes. As Christians, we have a great blessing of telling the story of our lives and how God is working through us. So when the hard moments come, sing your song to others. Witness to them. Testify about what God is doing in your life. Tell them that what's happening in your life is because of Jesus, and you want them to experience it too. One day, one very real day in human history, God invited Mary to join him on a God-sized mission. A mission that was created for her. A mission that she would accomplish, that he would accomplish through her. She had incredible faith, but she was no more special than you or me. She's simply doing what God put her here on earth to do. God interrupted her life and invited her to an incredible journey, an experience that would complete her and draw her closer to God than she's ever been before. And when that interruption came, Mary was ready. She'd prepared her faith. You and I have the same purpose. God put you here so he could use you. He has a plan for you. It's different than the plan for me. It's in the interruptions that we discover who God created us to be. You see, we're still here because God has us on mission. There's something still left that he wants you to do or your heart wouldn't be beating and you wouldn't be breathing. The story of Christmas is that every life is full of potential. Jesus came to save everybody. And he came to save them through you. You know God's going to do the same thing to you, right? God's going to interrupt your plans. He's going to call you on the journey that you were created for. It's literally the invitation of a lifetime. You'll face fear. You'll face culture. You'll face onlookers, naysayers. People closest to you will tell you you're nuts. But deep down, you know you were created for this. Your heart will be screaming, yes, this is exactly what I was created to do. You will know it. And your head will be screaming, no, no, don't do this. Your mind's going to be freaking out. Your heart's going to be leaping like a baby in a womb. Decide today when God calls with the desires of your heart, chase them with your heart, not your mind. What he asks you to do probably won't make a lot of sense. Have the courage and faith to go all in. He created you for his purpose. Don't miss it. Find God's favor. Admit your fear. Say yes. Then sing your song. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you have each one of us here for a reason. Everybody's here for a purpose. All of us are just people who have been put on this earth, gifted by you, created by you, to do incredible things, none of which we can do, all of which have to be done 
by you through us. So God, I pray when your heart looks to and fro, you find people whose hearts are truly yours. I pray when you look at remnant that you see a group of people who are praying and saying, here I am, Lord, send me. I'll go anywhere, I'll do anything, I'll pay any price. Just send me. God, please don't let anybody go through their life and miss the very mission, the very purpose that you created them because they were too scared to say yes. We love you, we thank you. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. 